HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Heritage Radio Network on Tour was recorded at Slow Food Nations 2017, a festival to taste and explore a world of good, clean, and fair food for all. Slow Food Nations took place in Denver over the weekend of July 14th through 16th and included panels, workshops, roundtables, cooking demos, farmer's markets, food tastings, and more. Heritage Radio Network's Kat Johnson traveled from Bushwick to the Mile High City to report on this first-of-its-kind international gathering presented by Slow Food USA. Heritage Radio Network on Tour is made possible by the support of the Julia Child Foundation. My name is Tara Brockman. I'm representing Slow Food today. I want to welcome everybody here. I've been a member of Slow Food for decades. I don't even want to tell you how many. Uh, and I wanted to let you know, I have a script here, and it says, uh, if you would take a minute to go to loveslowfood.com now or anytime during this weekend and make any donation at all, you will become a member of Slow Food. But I imagine most of you are members of Slow Food. I hope so. Okay, so um, I'm going to do a very mini introduction of our illustrious uh, stellar panel here. And then I'm going to let them do mostly introduce themselves and hand it over to Christine Mulkey, uh, who will be our uh, moderator for this session. So this is in praise of ancient grains. I think you're in the right place. And, of course, all grains are ancient. Is that right? <laughs> um, I believe that, you know, it was the hunter-gatherers who said, let's just hang out and uh, plant some barley and drink beer who got this uh, whole thing going. So... Um, I think I'm just going to do like a one-line intro of each person. And if you want to know more about them, there'll be a Q&A happening uh, midway through, I believe. So uh, let's start with Steve Jones on, the, on your left. Steve Jones is a wheat breeder and creator of the Bread Lab. Good enough? Okay. The Bread Lab in Washington State which is an incredible place if you haven't been there. And what's your grain, your grain gathering, correct, every year, which you should also know about. So, so he's the one who's helping recover thousands of varieties of wheat. How many are you trialing? Lines, we do tens of thousands. Tens of thousands of lines of different varieties of wheat. Okay, he'll tell you more about that later. Then we move from the farm. Let's go to the mill. <laughs> Glenn Roberts, who's also been instrumental in recovering ancient, well, all many varieties. True. Yes. Anything from 
1850. Before 1850. Carolina golden rice being one. Right. And we can learn more about that in a second. So we have Steve Jones, we have Glenn Miller, we have Chad Robertson, baker, author, most recently of Tartine Number 3. Yeah. Okay. So we can talk about baking uh, bread with him. And then finally, Chris Bianco. Chris with uh, Pizzeria Bianco, Pane Bianco in, uh, uh, where are you, Arizona? Allegedly. <laughs> and most recently, Chris has a book that's coming out in a week, and we Monday. heard there may be advanced copies of his book, Bianco, Pizza, Pasta, and Other Food I Like, which is a great title. Okay. And then finally, uh, Christine Mulkey, who's our moderator, uh, was the food editor of the New York Times Magazine. A long time ago. Okay. And currently... <laughs> Uh, mm. I'm editor at large at Bon Appetit, Thank and you. I started a consultancy because that's the new publishing. It's called Bureau X. Bureau X Consultancy, the new publishing. Okay, um, and so without post further, publishing, I'm sorry, it's the new post publishing. Okay, <laughs> good to know. We'll learn more about that. Okay, so this is a stellar panel, and there's an incredible amount of knowledge in this room, and I hope that um, you can all absorb some of that knowledge and then go out and disseminate the fact that there are all these many, many, many grains and that we should all be eating more of them in the, in the benefit of biodiversity, which is so important right now in our changed climate especially. So thank you very much. Christine. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, yes, welcome to WeWork, where if you get hungry, they have some crackers over there with uh, hummus packs that don't need to be refrigerated. I'm really excited about those for Slow Food Nation. <laughs> so, um, I'm sure everyone here, because we have such a dream team, uh, knows about these gentlemen and their origin stories. But I want to know what first sparked your interest in ancient grains. And I'm going to pass the mic down to Steve, because this is sort of the talking end of the couch here. Um, so for me I, I go with what tara said is is wheat and barley are ancient grains and and many others so for me the the appreciation came just to wheat proper so 40 years ago at chico state in northern california they had a program where you could teach city kids to farm and they gave you five acres and i chose to grow wheat and i was i grew up in cupertino i'd never seen wheat uh i grew it and i just became haunted with my wheat. I heard voices in it and I just fell in love with it. I went out there every day from November to June and I just fell in love with it. I've been baking since I was six. My Polish grandmother taught me how. So I'd always baked, but I just fell in love with the, the crop itself. Beyond the cliche of, of wheat and the mundaneness of it, I just was haunted by it. So I, uh, I started baking in like 1990 with um, this baker, Richard Bourdon in, in uh, Massachusetts. And he was my first mentor, and when I, I worked for him for a couple of years, and then I went to, to work with his mentor in, in, uh, in the Savoie, in the Alps of France. And, and strangely, it was like 1993 or four. I found this guy, Patrick Laporte, and he's French, but he was using... That was kind of my first exposure to what they were calling, to what they were calling ancient grains. Um, he, he was sort of like a French hippie, this guy. He's still there. He's in Brittany now, but he was using Kamut kind of before anyone was using it. And he was also using the French version of einkorn, which I'm sure you guys know. They, they call it petite epotre, so it was a really small spelt kind of grain, but I think what it was was einkorn. And um, 
as Steve said, that, that grain sort of haunted me. It was, it was, I think it was the original einkorn, so it didn't have the best baking qualities. It, was, it would kind of tend to go flat. And so we made a pan loaf with it, but the flavor was incredible. And that was, you know, 20-something years ago. And just uh, a couple of weeks ago, I got my first einkorn that was grown in North Dakota. That's one of the best grains I've ever used. And the, the flavor is different, but it's, you know, it's like people always ask, like, what's your favorite grain? And I mean, if you're working with tens of thousands of varieties, you don't really have a favorite. It's more like more grain with, with good flavor and good nutrition. Like, that's what we're all looking for. So I feel like after, like, I have more, we, we all have more grains than ever to work with because of the work that, that these guys have been doing. So it's a very exciting time right now. Very cool, very cool. Um, it, it, first of all, it's great. Thanks for having me, and it is an honor to be um, part of this. I think that's the the whole thing is, you know, I've always thought my work is, you know, I really haven't made anything in my life. You know, I didn't make water. I didn't make rain. I didn't invent grain. Um, so, but, um, you know, my whole life's journey is about, it's kind of the study of what makes good things good. And, and I see that in everything, you know, like in the when I was growing up in New York in the you know, late 60s, 70s um, and got into food. It was more about uh, what things taste like and definitely with pizza and breads. Uh, it was built more on, you know, uh, techniques and nostalgia and, and and historical preference. But there wasn't so much at that time about, you know, you use the grain that the, use the flour that. You know, that, uh, you know, you know, the pizzeria I worked at in New York in 13, you know, you, you got bags of, you know, white pizza flour and you didn't ask any questions. And um, the rest of my life since has been kind of asking questions. What are, what are the possibilities? And, um, you know, as always, it, you know, the inspiration starts with farmers and people that are, um, you know, that the fields do talk to them. And, and I think, you know, if I hope with everybody walks away with today is, you know, is that link in the chain mentality? There's no there's no singular approach or magical grain, I think. It's kind of like people. I'm definitely not for everybody. I, I uh, asked my wife. But but uh, but I think if we can find an, a, an appropriate place that, that it works, um, we'll live happily ever after. And I think it's, whether it's Edison Wheat and, you know, doing, you know, Chad and I are working on a lot of crazy things together on a project and and just looking at the possibilities. Um, so when farmers have something like, man, well, you know, we are unshackled. I think that's a, one cool thing about uh, being in America, I will say now, is even though we both revere, like for me, Italian cooking and all cooking, uh, but I'm not shackled to the traditions of one singular anything. You know, uh, taking techniques and looking what people are kind enough to put in the ground and, and, and support that as to the best of our ability. So there you go. Glenn, what's your grain origin story? Uh, <laughs> I didn't know whether I was a boy or a girl when I was a kid um, because my parents, who were professional musicians in the 50s, uh, were uh, rehearsals for what they did professionally were on the weekends and the mission where I grew up in San Diego I grew up in La Jolla and Kearney Mesa two places uh, in that town uh, the mission was out in Mission Valley and although there were Jesuits and nuns that commuted in and out and lived there 
it was still the tribes that ran the gardens, and the gardens had been first settlement gardens. So it was interspersed with native crops and European incursion crops. And so at the age of five, I had free babysitting as a native girl. Um, And I didn't know that boys didn't work in the food system in the tribes because the I was a mess. I kept tearing stuff up all the time, and they'd make me work the matate uh, to make masa in order to keep me from getting in trouble because I kept trying to run off and all that stuff. And uh, I had this imprint from the tribes with ancient maize, um, and I had no idea why I had that kernel of stuff because I became a musician and then studied abstract mathematics and then flew jets and then sailed around the world and ignored every bit of it for like 21 years and then woke up in the Caribbean at the end of the around the world trip going, hey, I'm surrounded by stuff I've never even seen before, especially on the Isle of Grenada and out in Mystique in those areas where they were still doing colonial crops. And uh, that experience um, woke me up. And so I came back and said, I'm going to be a farmer. Man, what a mess. I I worked with a guy named Spence Dickerson who was growing, who had been shaker taught. We were just talking about this earlier in Upper New York State. Uh, And he had percherons and he was farming with horses. And he was doing only land-raised cereal. And he had a polyculture pasture, which I didn't even know what that meant. And his dairy cows were putting out stuff. He had a waiting list for his dairy at Chapel Hill. This is in a place called Saxabaha. And at Saxabaha, it's how many people get to sit by the stove at the post office store. And the closer you are to the stove, the cooler you are. And when I met Spence, he had just started his first year. He's still farming there. He had just started his first year, and he didn't have a chair near the stove. And over the six years that I worked off and on with him, doing everything wrong, uh, and him correcting me, he moved up to right next to the stove. All the older farmers there, they kept saying, that guy's a nut, but look at his pastures. What's that? And then I started eating the stuff he was growing for the cows. Um, Then I met Bill Neal, and we started eating the weeds around those pastures. And then we started taking him to La Residence, his restaurant in Chapel Hill, and pretty much the rest is history. It was all wild pasturage, forage, ancient maize, and shaker ethos that led to colonial pasturage and husbandry that was undeniable having passed through the animal into eggs and dairy that was so remarkable you couldn't ignore it. And that imprint stuck with me all the way through other careers to building hotels till today when I woke up one day in the hotel business and said, mm, got to go farm. And I called <laughs> Catherine, who was my partner in business at the time, sitting right over there, I said, hey, Catherine. I'm going to go farm. And she started laughing. She said, you know, my family just beat themselves up to get off the farm. What the hell do you think you're doing? And I said, I'm going to farm old stuff. And she said, what does that mean? And next thing, we're all out there beating ourselves to death trying to bring in harvests on Wadmala Island with ancient grain. So that's my story. Wow. Wait, keep the microphone because we're going to go back this way. Okay. So n- 
No, no. So now I'd like to know about your own personal areas of interest. I mean, Glenn, you've gone really deep into American heritage grains, and, and that started from a project which you actually didn't mention. You were doing these menus based on sort of food history and architectural history and doing these period-specific menus. But of course, some of the things you wanted were extinct, and you wanted to you know grow them. So what have been some of your biggest discoveries, like the Carolina gourd seed white corn and things like that. And then how did you, what was the process of getting them into hands of chefs and how did they react initially? It was interesting. The local person doesn't ever do good factor immediately didn't take hold in Charleston. I was farming in a ring on the sea islands around Charleston. Um, uh, Lydia uh, Bastianich and Lydia Shire, a bunch of women, Alice waters i don't even know if she's here right now alice was listening you know she was huge when i started this is 1998 and she was actually listening to what i was talking about she wasn't telling me i was nuts everybody else was saying you're crazy you can't do that and i hear this every year with the food hubs we work with too and john's here he's heard it chris was the only person that wasn't saying no when we all were talking about trying to do a food hub in arizona which is now Bright, shiny, and Hayden Mills and others that Chris solely is responsible for, and very few people know that. Um, Chad's work and and Cal Steve's done. Steve's been behind everything and hardly ever gets credit for. It. So you're looking at the people that actually do the work. Yeah. I just talk a lot. And so, <laughs> and, and I ride on tractors. And I'm not a scholar. I'm not peer reviewed. So I can say anything, and I don't get beat up later, which John knows about. Uh, so in this particular case. Um, it was Keller, Wolfgang Puck, um, Daniel Ballou, of all people in the world, who I thought wouldn't even answer the phone, was hugely supportive in New York, along with a cadre of other chefs. Even Jonathan Waxman, who that time, this is a long time ago, was kind of out there. He actually was doing stuff. And that goes to Will uh, Farber at... Uh, with Wiley at WD, on to everybody was doing wacko stuff. I was coming up with stuff with Catherine that chefs had never seen before, but it was mostly West Coast chefs. And Chris, at 3 o'clock in the morning, screaming at me, saying, what's that about? What's that about? You remember that? Yeah. Chris, yeah. We had a lot of midnight to threes, and Steve has been through that with Dan, Barber, Chad, me, and everybody else. It tends... Once somebody that really loves flavor and understands the resonance between what their guests will do when, uh, as Prudhomme used to say, they put their head down and stop talking, or have guests, they put their head up and go, wow, that is invaluable in our world. And in the land race world, we were talking about this yesterday, when somebody does that with old grain, it means there's superior nutrition there, too. And what that means is that all the endeavors that we go through that seem xenophobic or precious or not fair and equitable end up being flavor targets for the future of food for people like Steve, who's doing groundbreaking work, the first naturally bred wheat in a hundred and how many years? I don't know. I don't know what we'll get to it today. But, you know, it used to be called mouth breeding. Cereal breeders were bakers. They wanted great flavor because they knew the nutrition was there. This is all going towards what Steve has been doing his entire career. And it resonates. So that's 
where it's at, that thing with gourd seed corn, everybody thought it was gone. We didn't know it was there. It was all up in Virginia and Texas. And then we found a hooch maker at gourd seed corn. And that started the whole run up and down Appalachia, finding all kinds of things that we're still finding. We just discovered an entire cannon of rice food waste that were wiped out after the Civil War based on African rice. All black scholars in America have been writing deeply on it, saying it had to have been there, and everybody was denying its presence, even though in the world collection of the USDA GRIN, that rice is there, and now Steve Jones is growing it in the Pacific Northwest at the Bread Lab. We're growing it on the Cape. It was grown all the way up in the Maritimes. You don't have to flood it. So its carbon footprint is minuscule compared to flood rice. It grows like a weed, like wheat in a field. Why are we making super highway flood rice when we could be doing this rice? Why did we wipe that rice out? How did because you even find it? Because it was African. Jim Crow. So it runs into social equity, social reconciliation, social recovery. Social justice is for the group that's doing finance, economies, and morality. We're dealing and feeding people. For us, it's reconciliation and recovery. And I've noticed through Chris's work with the tribes that social recovery and social reconciliation is a lot more important to the tribes. I learned that from him, and I've seen it replicated over and over again. Where we are, the Wampanoag, same thing. Where we are uh, in southeast Texas, same thing. Where we are in Alabama, same thing. Where we are in North Carolina, same thing. They're interested in maintaining the integrity of their foods. And this has all to do with that. So the old things like Carolina Gold Rice, not that old. That's revolutionary. African rice, thousands of years old. Direct to our continent and wiped off in the North American continent for what reason, we don't know. That's the latest discovery. The flavor profile in that rice and the nutritional aspects, the anthocyanin nutritional ideas that are coming out of rice bran these days in modern nutrition science worldwide, the anthocyanin content in Glabarima African red-bearded rice classes, and there's hundreds of varieties, is off the charts. No one's even doing background research on this stuff right now, except for Steve Jones and a couple of scientists I'm working with at Texas A&M, one, the National Rice Research Center, another one, and Clemson University, a third. There, and everybody, David Van Sanford has some at University of Kentucky, too. I shouldn't leave him out. Other than that, nobody's even starting. It's an entire world that doesn't take carbon. So that's where we're coming from. And it has massive flavor, and it's a beautiful plant. It matures in 75 days. You can harvest it and eat it right then. It's quick as hell. John can grow it out to Hatchapi. Probably was grown there. Probably was. All right? And how did you even find the African rice? I didn't. I, I just got tired of reading black authors, especially um, I got really drunk with Jessica Harris, who's famous for almost killing people drinking. She has a good book out, too. Yeah, she's just got a out. beautiful book right around where my wife lives in New York City. As a matter of fact, it's all about that neighborhood. Um, and Jessica and I spend lots of time together because uh, we're in the same orbit a lot. And it, she, she kept saying, why do we write about this decade in, decade out, and no one's growing it? Why isn't anyone growing it? And I said, well, frankly, the science community is not there. You know, they, they say that it's persistent, so you can't get it near a flood rice field. Why would we ever grow it in flood? No one ever, ever did. They always grew it in, like, the edges of Carolina Bays, which persistence doesn't make any difference there because it's not a rice production area. 
or it was in the Midlands or Foothills. They grew it up in Appalachia. Why don't we just do it? Jessica is a postdoc PhD in French Senegalese theater, plus she's got a phenomenal palate, plus she can drink 10 men under a table and still deliver a postdoc lecture. Um, you know, uh, and she just wore me down. I said, okay, we're just doing it. So Steve got on board immediately. As soon as he heard it, he said, send me the seed. Just like that, right? So those flavors go to bread. What were our real rice breads, number one bread in colonial America? It was medicine. This is in the pharmacopoeia, y'all. This is medicine. Rice bread, the number one bread in colonial America. Thousands of iterations. The base staple was African rice. It wasn't sativa that we were exporting. That was all going offshore. Nobody was making big bread culture with Carolina gold, even though Carolina gold rice bread was an elite, xenophobic, and fabulous food ways. I love it. But the real core is rice breads based on upland rices, which can grow anywhere in the United States, anywhere in the world, up in the Himalayas, all the way down to Death Valley, if you treat them right. Okay? Amazing. Um, Chad, you've done a lot of research in Scandinavia, Eastern Europe, and Japan. Um, how are people looking at their native grains there? Is there a culture? I went to, um, I went to Denmark a few years ago, uh, kind of on Glenn's um, recommendation. You had told me about Anders Borgen and, and all these guys. And I think, Steve, and Steve I think, about all that from Steve. yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it all goes back to these two guys. <laughs> But what I found, um, I yeah, I decided to do another book because my team, my Tartine team, wanted to engage and do another thing. But we didn't. I, we had put kind of everything we had in the first book that we did, and so we had to go basically find new adventures, meet new people, get inspired. And um, what I kind of walked in on in Denmark, which is a small country, there's five million people there, so it's it's. For me, that meant that when they get an idea, when the food community gets an idea, like they want to revive uh, all of the Nordic, you know, ancient Nordic varieties of wheat, they can make it happen pretty quickly. Um, they all got aligned. And um, one of you guys told me to go visit Jorn Using also, who's up in the, the northern part of Denmark, um, in Aalborg, who I guess he's been working for, for 20 years on, on finding and bringing some of these grains back. Um, when I went there, probably it was 2008, 2009, um, restaurants like Noma had, you know, this, this tiny amount of, of this uh, Uland wheat that was, I guess, traditionally grown on this island in Sweden, and then they were bringing it back. It wasn't really, people weren't using it. It was like a very few people, and, and people were talking about it a lot. Over the course of two or three years, um, I was just telling Steve, you know, you go, you go to Copenhagen now, and, and you've got that flour and little one kilo bags in the in the supermarket and it's organic and it's grown right there and it's milled fresh and um so you know naturally i came back and i and i heard about steve's work at the bread lab and i went there maybe four years ago the first time and and you know he it it was almost like i went into an alternate you know a mirror universe of of what i saw in denmark you know steve was working on all the same stuff with his team and particularly i i was saying you know i'd love to to get some of these Nordic wheats growing in the Pacific Northwest, and you guys grew, I don't know how many varieties of Ulans. And it all came out totally different than it does in Scandinavia, by the way. But it was great. Um, and, yeah, I mean, my big thing was, like, you guys are growing all this stuff. When can I use it? You know, when can I get this stuff for tartine? And it's been a few years, and we're, we're actually... 
We've been using some of it. I think in the next month we're going to be using all these grains that are coming from uh, Northern California, Oregon, Washington, and it's it's the best flour, the best grain, the best flour that I've been able to use since I've started baking. So it's it's super exciting, um, and it, it goes back to what what I learned from Bianco. It's it's like that. What makes good food good, and more and more it's it's finding those grains, and it's it you know. Just, just for example, making cookies out of you know one of these barley's or one of these einkorns or wheats that these guys are growing, it just—it's like you never had a butter cookie, you know, when you first try it, or or a biscuit or a scone or a loaf of bread, or pizza or pasta. So that's and we've been doing bread for a while, and and everyone's using all these amazing grains in the bread. And I think for me, the thing I'm most excited about going forward is is really. Um, Playing around with Bianco with with different flatbread doughs and then and then pastry. And what about in Japan? Because when you were working on something there, you said you were getting into the Hokkaido flour, and no one there you know, was really into it. Yeah, Japan is an interesting question. Um, we're not. We're still looking at Japan. I, I still really want to work there. It's an amazing place and super inspiring to go there. But when I went, um, when we were going to be doing a project there, I was. Uh, you know, bringing all the influence from these guys to Japan, and I was talking about, I was I was asking my partners there, like, you know, I want to meet the farmers, I want to see what they're growing, and and they said, well, you know, it's it's mostly just commodity. There's no organic. And you've been to Japan a few times, um, Steve, and you know, I said, well, you know, can we change that? Can we start growing stuff? Can we create a um, a market for this? Because Tokyo, in particular, has amazing bakeries. They're they're mostly French, and they're as good as what you have in Paris, maybe better. And for the Japanese to make it authentically French, they're importing all French flour, and they're you know they're doing the exact thing. But what I what I kind of was uh, preaching to them was you know why don't we use your local flour? You know we'll, we'll we'll bring some ideas, but this is this is not meant to be like tartine plopping down in Tokyo and making you know California bread or or French bread. This is about us coming and and engaging. Japanese baking community and the and the farmers um, to select for flavor and nutrition. I mean, just like what we're all trying to do here. And I kind of got the the our project in Japan didn't work out. Um, again, I'm still kind of going back and working with people. And particularly, this one chef named Shino, Shinobu Name, who has an amazing restaurant in Tokyo called Lefervescence. And he's working with uh, a very renowned baker named Ayumu-san who has a bakery called Sukrakur in Osaka. And a lot of people consider him one of the best bakers in, in Japan. Sweetest guy, amazingly talented. He, he came and spent um, two months with us at Tartine doing bread and kind of learning our style. And then he went back. And the last time I checked in with these guys, which is very recently, they're already building this whole network of, of farmers in on all the islands, some in Hokkaido, which is the northernmost island, which is colder than the rest, and it's a good good place to grow wheat, but they're, they're also growing stuff just outside of Tokyo. And, yeah, I mean, it's it's been probably three years, and it's it's all happening. I mean, they're all doing it. It was When, when I sort of brought it up, I think it was like an, a new idea, like we don't have to make French bread, we can make Japanese bread. And what is that? I mean, there's no Japanese bread um, historical tradition, but they're they're basically making their own now, which is... Super exciting to see. So, Chris, how did you discover the white Sonora wheat? And um, tell us about your work with the Hayden Mills. Uh, well, that's how I discovered it, basically. Is, uh, uh, you know, 
uh, Jeff and I uh, from, and Emma from Hayden Flower Mills have a relationship from the beginning. And uh, I think it was always like, you know, my perfect world was always kind of the butcher, and, you know, and the baker, and maybe in this case, the grain growers. And um, so just like Chad was saying that, um, like going to Japan and empowering people to, to, to kind of, kind of, you know, start where you are. Like, you know, like for instance, like I've got a Toyota truck that's made in San Antonio, Texas. Like that makes sense to me. Like it makes sense to me. Like if you have things that fit together really well, we have people that can put it together, but we can work together. And I think that's what, you know, using that same philosophy in food, like, what do you have? Well, we have, you go to France, you go to Italy for great technique um, or wherever in the world, in Japan, I mean, anywhere. And, and then starting where you are and, and we look at food at, at what point is, does the compromise start? So looking at a grain like white Sonoran and, you know, uh, you know when, when they started out, they were right in the back of our little space and now they're directly to farm in a beautiful uh, you know, set up and it's great. But back then it was really about, you know, the, you know, the Osterville, the mills here. My brother Marco was there, you know, so we were able to, you know, get something right from the mill and, and, and see what happens. So now we can say, well, maybe not perfect for pizza, maybe not, um, or what we would recognize that, but maybe perfect for this sponge cake or perfect for this biscotti or perfect for, and I think that's really, you know, kind of a little bit like, Definitely like my language, which can be inappropriate for some situations, but <laughs> but 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 you know uh, maybe if we're alone with a few beers, it's all right. But so I think I think I think it's appropriating, you know, the, the you know that 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 grain in this case, and and it was really interesting, like white Sonoran. You know, the name wasn't really a sexy name. It was like it almost sounded like you know something that was 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 purified, and then you know you go back where you know. Um, something is usually from somewhere. And when you look at a place like Arizona, or as I call it, the artist formerly known as Mexico, um, <laughs> you know, that, uh, you know, you look at, like, there was something going on here before this became a state. There was, before we put lines in the, in the sand, you know, and uh, as we went into Sonora and Hermosillo and, and beyond, that there were mills and there was growers and there were missionaries in the 1600s that came Father Kino came and they came with bags of grain and they bought animal husbandry, they bought grain techniques and, you know, um, uh, really interesting. Uh, I went to a talk um, with Gary Nabhan, uh, who's another dear friend who's been so instrumental in, in, uh, with Native Seed Search and, 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 and just uh, an inspiration. Um, and, you know, the relationship of grain and I believe Jeff will probably know this more, or Emma, but I think it was White Sonoran that they brought into the, to the, the, the uh, maybe the nomadic Apache people and later on into the Pima community. But, you know, sometimes, in a, in a quick story, um, the cause and effects of decisions made. And the talk that I want to go hear Gary make at U of A was um, what happens when we make decisions without understanding consequence. The decisions made in like 1910 when Goodyear Tire moves from Cleveland to Goodyear, now Goodyear, Arizona, formerly uh, just Phoenix, West Phoenix, um, and no knock against Goodyear doing their thing, but 
you know, they can say, hey, you, all you guys grow on that, you know, Pima Club or, or White Sonoran wheat. We'll pay you five times as much to grow this cotton. It's going to be the new cash crop. And so what happens then on that decision, well, what happens? Now Native peoples that maybe it's, you know, uh, you know a wheat winter, corn summer, you know, what happens to, the, to their diet? What happens to now animal proteins are up 40%, you know, decisions made. Now when we look at Native peoples and we see, well, how did, you know, whether it's diabetes or how did these things happen? So I think as much as, like, like from a chef's perspective, like, you know, I want food that is good. I think part of, like, we're trying to do things and fix things because our world is broken, you know, and it didn't have to be that way. And I think, you know, we're just trying to glue back the pieces that, you know, if we start doing something as good as can be, and where did it get break? And this is what, like, I am not the smart person, you know, like, you know, Glenn and Steve on, on the bookends of this thing. Like, when the universities get involved, I mean, I'm, I dropped out of school in 10th grade and went to work. I, I don't, I only know things from burning things and, and you bringing them to me. And from a sensical approach, like, like when you go to Europe and you're like, God, that guy that eats that Levant every day in the mountains is like skinny as a rail and he's carving ham off and, you know, and the cheese and, and the goats. It may all make sense. Like, how are they not broken people? Because, you know, they're, 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 uh, they're connected to it. So, anyway, to answer your question on White Sonoran, it was, it was that same link in a chain. Like, what do we have? How did it get here? And instead of saying it's not good for pizza or not even great for maybe a traditional, you know, baguette, it might be perfect or, or in a blend with, you know, with, um, uh, with Durham, you know, Bluebeard Durham that they have. It's amazing. And we can find the right, you know, it's just kind of, uh, uh, you know, it's like any relationship. Like, thank God my wife, you know, is, or, or um, the people that work have a different skill set than me. Like, they can, you know, uh, I have a very limited one, but thankfully I have people around me that can do things. I think that's what ingredients are to me. Find out what you don't tell me what you can't, you know, tell, tell me what you can't do. Tell me what you can do, you know, and I think that's what, um, anyway, that's my, my, uh, my relationship with White and Orange. I don't know if that made sense. Excellent. Yes. What what have been some of the most surprising and important discoveries that you've made in wheat over the years, and um, what future are you working to create? Sure, and I can. So I was a commodity wheat breeder for twenty years, and and I divorced that system completely. And um, the reason that I divorced it was there's there was no room for beauty in that system. There is no room for beauty. There is no room for flavor. There is no room for nutrition. There is no room for putting the farmer first. And and what we do in our lab is is completely non-commodity wheat. And we do almost 100% whole wheat everything. And that's some of the surprises that we found very early on was there are flavors in wheat. When we mill Sonora, it smells like corn, Right. And it, there's, a, there's a beauty to that. There's no room for that in a system. There's no room for, for me or us in a system that doesn't see beauty in that, right? And that's the system that we have is this, this huge white flower thing. So um, wheat has been bred and developed in this country since the very early 1900s for one goal, and that's white flour. You take 100 pounds of wheat and it makes 75 pounds of flour. I find that odd. 
I find it odd that we strip away that 25%, which is 8% fiber, which is iron, zinc, selenium, magnesium, calcium, vitamin E, all of these things, and we get rid of it, and we're left with something with the nutritional density of a Q-tip. Okay. That's, that's white flour. And if we didn't partially enrich it, we'd get beriberi and rickets. But we don't put, they don't put anything back in except what they have to, and it's a little bit of folic acid and things like that. So... So the, the, the exciting things that we found are you can do almost everything with 100% whole wheat if you have the right miller, baker, farmer, and variety. And like Chris said, people that don't say no is their first answer. So, so for me, I don't have time for that one, right? So, so people that say no, we can't do it. We just go on to the next person or group. And that's a, a powerful thing that we've learned is we don't waste a lot of time now as well so we don't you can say you don't have a lot of time but um, we make 100% whole wheat work Glenn mentioned a new variety that we have this is the first wheat variety developed in the United States in probably 120 years that's never gone through a roller mill what that means is it's never been made into white flour so this is a variety developed specifically for 100% whole wheat and once we make that move, and it's a modern land race also, so there's variation left in it. Once we make that move, the bakers, the millers, and the farmers will have a whole new world of, of not compromising, not, not baking whole wheat products out of something that was designed for white flour. That's why we go back to the old wheats, is because they weren't. So, so pre-1880, it wasn't designed. There weren't roller mills around. They were softer, and they were made for, for whole grain. The issue with many of those is yield, right? So our mission is we do natural breeding. We don't do, what I like to say is we don't do GMO, we do gluten. Okay, those, those are two, we get questions on both those all the time. What about gluten? I don't want to talk about gluten. We do gluten. We don't do GMO. I don't want to talk about GMO. I spent 20 years talking about it. So we don't do it. But what we do is put the farmer first. And as a commodity wheat breeder, there are varieties that couldn't go to the farmer because they didn't yield enough white flour or the flour wasn't wide enough. What that means is the farmer's being punished by a system that's, that's very good at punishing, right? And um, so now we start with the farmer first. We develop lines that don't require many inputs, organic or conventional. We do both. We do things that are going to work for the farmer first. Then we had to develop a lab, which is the bread lab, because it wasn't designed into the system of what would be the best use of those flowers. And Chris and, and um, um, uh, the others talked about that, too, of, of what is the best use for it. Is it a scone? Is it a flatbread? Is it a baguette? Is it a pizza dough? That's what you figure out. And then you, you make it work for the farmer first. You make it work for the miller, the, the baker, and then for us. And flavor and nutrition has to be there. So those are our goals. Um, and th that's what I find very exciting, is, is the groups of people that we get to work with, too. The diversity of the folks and the diversity, the biodiversity that we work with throughout the whole system. So that's what I find exciting. Amazing. And I have to say, I mean, it's so surprising just the product, the range of product that you're able to develop at the cafe at Blue Hill at Stone Barns, which anyone can go to. You don't have to strap in for the whole experience. They have this amazing croissant. And only after eating my second one did I realize that it was whole wheat, you know, and just to be able to get that flexibility and, and definition was incredible. And just to see what also what they've done, because I, you, 
I managed, I don't know, somehow I was walking, I, I had my baby strapped on me and I walked in front of Blue Hill and there was Steve who just gotten off the plane with his head baker and Dan was standing outside and Dan was like, hey, Mulkey, want a loaf of bread? And he handed me this thing, you know, and it was like this thick. And, and But then now, fast forward three, four years, and they've got this whole incredible bakery working with, with your wheat. So it's exciting to see that, you know, with the visibility that comes around that, and also with the visibility around the barber wheat, which Dan wrote about in his book, I'm also curious to know, have larger companies been approaching you to talk about maybe helping them develop a better wheat on a larger scale? So, so scale, flour, sorry. Yeah, scale is something that, that we struggle with, and, and we get the question a lot of times, how is this going to help areas that I won't mention? And, and um, I won't even say that. So um, the, the, we're talking to the largest baking group in the world. We work with the smallest bakers, which are serious home bakers as well. Um, access is, is key to what what we strive for access in terms of knowledge and availability and and we don't think that very good food should be anyone should be priced out of that so um access for us is critical and that starts with making it work for the farmer first bring the price points down throughout the whole system um access in terms of helping people realize that they they can bake and it can be very simple and for us taking the pressure off of home bakers in particular that it doesn't have to look perfect. And you'd be surprised how many people don't bake because they're frightened that it's not going to be perfect. Seriously, right? So they're having 12 people come over, and they're just freaked out that their bread has to look just perfect. So the first thing I do with folks like that is I make bread that looks crappy. <laughs> and, and that's unintentional usually, but, um, but it tastes very good. And it's so... Um, I think that's important. My, with my graduate students, we do uh, community kitchen workshops and things like that. We did one. There were 60 people there. There was a woman in her 80s. She walked up afterwards, and she pointed her finger at me, and I thought, oh, God. And she said, uh, she goes, I like you. And I said, I said most people don't. And then she said, she said, but for two reasons. One is I don't have to get flour all over myself and the counter and the floor. I don't want to clean up the kitchen. I don't either. I don't like the feel of flour. So we just do super high hydrations and never take it out of the bowl and pour it into the pan. She said, she said you showed me that. And she said, also, you told me that it doesn't have to be perfect. And she said, I haven't baked since the 70s, but I'm going to start baking again. So that's important. And that's exciting for us, too. So. Great. So finding the grains, making them accessible are two things, but also milling them is another. Um, Chris actually had a really cool quote when we were talking before. He said, in 10 years, micro millers are going to be the new coffee bars. Um, tell me about some of the work that you guys are doing in that area and how can we get this all um, to the home bakers? So um, in our lab, we have a new mill room and we have 12 different um, home size mills in there prototypes and other ones that are available they cover a range of ones that are about 89 bucks up to about uh two grand what what we see in in fresh milling is or is a nuance and and flavor coming through there's a lot of folklore that you have to age flour there's there's tremendous folklore in, in all the baking um aging flour is is one uh we do fresh milling we mill right into the bowl basically so um, you do pick up tremendous flavors. And I'll just say one thing about um, aging and artificial aging and bleaching is 
We've taken time out as an ingredient in most of our foods, and I'm not telling you anything, but, but for us it's a revelation that we need to put time back in, right, to what we do. And one thing you can put time back into is flour and not artificially age it, which is what bleaching is, and that's using uh, benzoyl peroxide and things like that. So, so getting into the, to the fresh milling, direct milling, is, is something we're quite interested in at a home level and then all the way up to, to regional milling. And, and we get questions on scaling up, and we say maybe people should scale down, first of all, and maybe they should become less efficient, second. And, and that's, that, if that works, then you replicate these models. You don't, you don't size them, you replicate them. So what we do and what most of us do, I think everyone would agree, is we're replicable, we're not scalable. I don't want to scale, right? But Chad, you're you're going to need to eventually. So tell me about some of the work that you and Chris are doing. That, I mean, it's a really good point. Um, someone else just recently told me you should use the word replicate, not scale. I think for the same reason you're saying. Um, I in the beginning of this whole process for me a few years ago, um, when we were designing our our space in San Francisco that we call the manufactory that we opened about a year ago, I ordered. I went to visit Steve, and I, I tried all the different mills because I had this idea that the roller mill was not really evil. It was just used for evil, and they had a, they had a small roller mill. And um, well, I, I was, like, half right with my idea. It, it's, it's, it's a different kind of milling. It's not, it is kind of used for evil. It doesn't have to be, but it also doesn't do the same thing as a stone mill. So um, what I kind of found was there's no, there's no, like, silver bullet for any of it. It's... it's if you have good grain, Chris was saying this earlier, if you have good grain and you have a crappy miller, you know, it's not going to be good. Or if you have a great miller and you have bad grain, and then when you give it to us to make something with, if we don't make something good, it's not really going to go anywhere. Um, so right now, I never, I never uncrated my mill. I bought a big German mill that's like the size of a, of a, of a car, and it's still sitting in storage, and I'm going to sell it to someone that wants to mill every day. Um, Mainly, I visited a lot of people, and I saw like bakers that are super inspiring to me, like like Dave Bauer milling all of his stuff. He basically mills all the time now; he doesn't have time to bake. He's getting amazing flour, but I didn't really want to do that personally. Um, and also, like I, I've, I'm like an old baker now; I've been doing this for a long time, and um, I don't need to be the new guy finding the, the this grain that no one can get but me. I'm I'm trying to actually um, replicate it in a, on a scale where Obviously, I, I want it for tartine. I want to use it. I want, I want Chris to be able to use it, and I want everyone to be able to use it. So um, just since we started talking about all this stuff, I think it's more and more. I mean, it, there's a ton of people growing grain. There's a ton of people milling and bakers milling. And for me, what the, the most important thing for us to do as, as we grow, because we are doing a pretty big project together, um, Bianco and I uh, and some other people in L.A., is to, is to try to make it try to organize all the players and, and make it to where it works. It's optimized for everyone. Um, what you said, like, it's got to, it's got to work for the farmer. It's got to work for us. And then, um, I mean, the first, the first time I started talking about ancient grains, one of my, one of my mentors and really good friends, Michelle Suas was, who's legendary, uh, baker and bakery designer. He, this was a few years ago. And he said, I, Chad, I don't know how you're going to do it. Like, no one's going to be able to afford a loaf of bread made with organic einkorn. You know, five years ago, you'd say that's going to be a $25 loaf of bread. And that's not the case now. And I always think back to when 
when Alice switched to gra- all grass-fed beef at Chez Panisse. So it was a really big deal because, A, there wasn't really good grass-fed beef at the time. <laughs> it was really hard to get. No one knew how to cook it. And, you know, now in, in cities, we, we, you know, we have all this stuff, and it's, it's relatively affordable, and it's just going more and more in that direction. So um, I think, yeah, trying to, trying to work together and build build these regional systems where we can all kind of get what we want. I'm, I'm all for people milling at their bakery. Um, that's not really what I want to do because I think we need kind of too much. We need too much of it. So we're not going to be milling directly into the bowl, but we're going to be getting flour that's milled weekly and, you know, storing it properly and, and trying to replicate on a larger scale like that. Any thoughts on milling regionally? The, the, I think the, maybe the most powerful thing that comes out of here is Steve s- speaking about the bifurcation of systems because he probably has the best population look at how this works and where the pain is. Um, and then when Chad, t- you probably don't even remember, but he, I was sitting there talking to him. He said, you know, I think millers need to mill and bakers need to bake. And farmers need to farm. And I went, holy crap, you know? <laughs> Seriously, that's so simple. And it's what Steve's saying. And I've been doing two of those things for 20 years. And for the last five years, I've actually been trying out this system where I don't even mill. We have competent, fantastic millers that can do stuff without bragging, because Catherine knows this, we're worldwide now, that they can't do in Hokkaido. We can do stuff they can't do. We know about cryogenic milling and back pressure in vitro, a rear gas envelope. We know all the high-tech stuff, plus our gen- genetics. And when it comes down to it, it's all about what you're doing in the seed field. It's not even what you're doing in the farming, because if the genetics aren't straight, this is what I learned from Steve. I just sat there was it the grain um, uh, the, in Skowhegan a decade ago or so? And he was the only person that actually came to see my talk, which was really, a, I didn't know who he was. And I'm going, okay, well, I'm just going to sit here and talk to this guy, thinking he was just a local guy, and it turned out to be Steve. And he, he, like, he was so generous, and he said, you know, it's, it's about what you're going to do 10 years from now. 20 years from now, 100 years from now, it has nothing to do with what you're doing today, genetically and soil-wise. So the other thing that as a farmer you bring to the table, which Chris has mentioned and Chad too, is these ideas about tilth and how you get there. And I think when you think Japanese systems and look at history, you look at African systems and look at history, you look at Italian systems and look at history, and you look at what my area did, which was take stuff directly out of the Fertile Crescent through the Sicilian Exchange right in the last part of the 17th century and take it as gospel for a century, and no one really wrote much about it. All kinds of ancient grain, all kinds of beautiful tilth systems that they used to cover up the horrors of slavery. Well, we're doing it this way, and we're so kind to the slaves. Well... It was we wiped out Native Americans and we had slavery. Come on, uh, there's no way around that. The poster child of what could be good about that is they appropriated African sun cycle systems, 
Milpa from Native Americans. They brought Native Americans back to consult. They brought the best land stewards from Germany in right at the beginning of the 1700s. By 1730, there were 200 German wheat families with their own genetics growing in a wheat belt, which still exists today, from about Aiken, South Carolina, all the way over into North Carolina on a diagonal right down the rain line which allows for superior winter wheat production. And if you look at the tilth in that belt, even with the crap of cotton coming in and trying to ruin it, we can get burnout cotton land back in six years to spongy tilth. We do this as a consulting thing, pro bono, through our foundation. It's the tilth and genetics that drive flavor. The best farmer in the world, as Chad said, the best baker, and Chris said, the best baker cannot take a lesser product and do it. If you are not working in the best soil, you can't do it for the long term. And I had long talks with John Hammond about this, whose family was doing this on the frontier way back when, too. Same stuff. They were watching very carefully what the tribes were doing around them because there's so much to learn there. And in Chris's place, uh, watching the Pima walk in with stuff that they harvested on the windward side of the plant with a different flavor than stuff on the leeward side of the plant and discussing the nuances of ash from a different ear on a stalk of maize and how that changes the color of masa, let alone the flavor profile. And that magic, it is absolutely stunning. And it all has to do with terroir, the root systems, what's going on that you can't see, and the genetics. And it's all women-driven. I always want to throw that in there. There aren't any guys in this system. So anybody's thinking that they're a genius guy out there, I've met Hanalore. And I frankly know who has the brains in that family. I love you, Steve. But Hanalore is Steve's wife. She is. There's always somebody fabulous hanging out behind guys, as John will attest us to, right? So don't forget it. It was all women in the fields up until 1600s. The guilds hit in Celtic lands. They bifurcated the system. Women were seed people. They were beer barn bread people. The all of it. women in Western culture. Africa, always women. Guys get out farming rice in the heat. They go sterile, so your civilization collapses. That's a pretty brutal lesson. It is women-driven, right? So if you want to win women, send the guys out in the heat. Right. I think it's going to be 90 today, so yeah. I'll see, we'll see you all have some beer at the uh, at the Ancient Grain Festival. Anything else you gentlemen would like to add before we open it up to Q and A? You know, just just one point about you know the women. The little, no, just about the about the mills being the, the the new coffee bar thing. What I meant was like it was like you know I, when I opened in '88. There was always, like, the new thing. It was, like, whether it was, you know, charcuterie or, you know, we went through 10 years of really, if it wasn't bad charcuterie, it would, might kill you, you know? And then you had all these people that were doing great charcuterie and spent their whole life on it or researching pigs and whatever. And, and there was just became so much, like, I make my, I make my own everything. And it's, like, I was, like, and we were, Chad and I were talking, like, I would make zero if, if I had a great butcher Miller farmer and I would I would assume my position I think when we leave this room I think that's the way like I look at like it's service in a restaurant like we have you know think tanks and whatever but as soon as the lights go on like we assume our positions 
like, you know, whatever it is, whether it's retarding dough or scaling or firing the oven, whatever it is. And I think sometimes culturally, we've had such a penchant in this country for ownership. Like, we got to, I want one of those. I saw this cool restaurant, I'm going to replicate it. I saw these guys who insure cuter, I got to have it. So there's a stock shop, I'm going to make it. Instead of, like, looking at, like, let me look at my demographic or our geographic or what can we do optimum and who's doing it and does this decision that I'm making you know flippantly who does it affect and and I think that that's that's um that's kind of what I meant by that uh, that you know uh we we need we need to find ways for for uh farmers to be able to farm millers in, in areas to be able to, to to grow and drive down prices become affordable, and then we can do the rest, I think. Wow. Um, Kat is going to pass around the microphones. This is also being recorded for Heritage Radio. I just wanted to make a comment about your rice and I was a Peace Corps volunteer, and we had a drought that year. So we were importing Texas rice, which I thought was, you know, boxed rice, which was kind of crazy. But I had a question about European grains and how they vary. Because a friend of mine who had went with a friend who was gluten intolerant said she had no trouble eating bread in Europe. And so I just wondered, you know, how the U.S., the things that you're working on, Steve, compare to what they mill in, in Europe? Um, I don't have the, the definitive answer for that, but I do have that exact experience with my wife. When we we went to France, as I mentioned before, in um, I think it was 93, to work, to apprentice with uh, other bakers there. And my wife, she's a pastry chef, but she's also gluten intolerant. She has been before I met her. Um, she, we were, So we were working in France and like for free, and we lived on the bread and that we got for free at the from the bakery. So she ate a ton of bread, and no effect at all. And I did think for the longest time that it was the wheat variety, but it turns out I believe more. And this has been backed up, I think, by a lot of research that um, we were working in traditional natural leaven bakeries. So all the bread that was made, they, they were using good grains where we worked, but also it was fermented with a natural uh, sourdough for, you know, 12 hours, 24 hours, long, long fermentation with a, with a natural leaven, which we found basically makes that stuff digestible for people that are um, gluten intolerant. I think celiac's a little more serious, obviously, and we don't really go there just because you, you can't tell if it's going to be safe or not. But in general, um, if, the, if you're using you know, well-sourced, well-milled wheat and you ferment it with a natural leaven for a long time, it's, it's not going to have that same reaction on people. And I think that's what we also experienced in Europe, eating European breads, because we were, were bakers. We were, look, we were going to the best bakeries doing you know, bread that inspired us, so they were all fermenting in that, in that way. Yeah. Uh, just you know, one thing that uh, I had a conversation with... Uh, uh, Andrew Wild, Dr. Andrew Wild, once about, uh, you know, just about a gluten thing. And, and uh, I'm someone, I, I have asthma, and um, I'm not, I, can, I can eat it, but if I breathe in freshly, you know, milled flour, it can affect my lungs kind of in a way. It was 
It's weird, but I've, I've found that, you know, uh, if we are broken, going back to like our people are sick. That's in the, you know, some, we're a sicker country than we were, you know, uh, back in the day. Um, it seems now, are we reacting? What are we reacting to? Like, you know, fast foods, lack of fermentation, digestibility, or are we just sick from Roundup? I mean, what is the, you know, what are we, what, what, what's making us sick? And I think, so it's been such a sweeping, even though I'm always incredibly sensitive and, and, and accommodating as much as I can to someone that is truly in, intolerant, I think, you know, the research that the smart people are doing about what's actually making us sick, we'll, I kind of we'll think will set us free in the future a little bit. Just had a question for you, Glenn. Um, just about whatever you can comment more about your foundation, because I've heard from a number of people just roundabout like Glenn and the foundation, and you just briefly mentioned something there. So, just was curious. Well, it'd be nice if it was me, but it's actually uh, the I'm the tractor donkey and Dr. David Shields, uh, Dr. Stephen Kresovich. Uh, Dr. David Shields is a world-renowned historian, uh, and he is here. So that's why you're hearing it. I wish it were me. Uh, but uh, and I try to pretend to be David as much as possible. In fact, the uh, Slow Food Nation sent out something that had my name on it, it had David's picture, and I told him uh, when he was here, I said, "I'm going to introduce you as Glenn at one point during this thing, and then I get all your rep." Um, so David Shields, uh, Carolina scholar, uh, eminent historian in six disciplines, uh, world authority on all of them, uh, just an amazing guy. We ran the foundation for three years without leadership waiting for David to say yes, calling him every week going, you know, we can't do this without a highly ranked historian and we don't want to commute to Yale. Uh, and we know you're here and you can't hide and we're not going to go away. So he finally consented uh, with a lot of things like uh, permanent supply of the best research rice for his household and other leverages that we won't go into. Um, having to do with spirits that are not quite legal. Uh, because if you're a Southern, uh, that which you can drink is the most important grain culture. <laughs> right? So um, we got him uh, on those levels. And uh, the Dr. Richard Porche, World's Foremost Authority, I was telling someone here earlier on uh, tidal rice mills and other rice milling technology prior to 1800. Uh, he's on the board. Uh, he's a Citadel Scholar of note and has taken a double postdoc PhD in these very arcane places. We also have Dr. Stephen Kresovich, which is the world's foremost uh, sub-Saharan cereal researcher in sorghum spe- specifically, but others in TEF and the rest of it. Anything that's in sub-Saharan Africa, he's uh, been weighing in on. And he's uh, run about every ARS east of the Mississippi uh, on top of all the other stuff. I've just found out last week he actually ran the Geneva Station buckwheat research. I didn't know that. Four years. So he's multiple whammy. We have Dr. Anna McClung as the adjunct board member. She is the chief geneticist for the United States for rice and probably the most productive and powerful and far-reaching and supportive for public good in the public domain researcher in rice in the Western Hemisphere, along with Dr. Susan McCooch, who is also adjunct out of Cornell at the McCooch Rice Lab, and a bunch of other smart people like Dr. Merle Shepard, who really started all this stuff. That uh, was uh, Merle's idea. He's a Emeritus International Rice Research Institute. Uh, 
Um, he's uh, ex-emeritus uh, director of Clemson Coastal Research and Education Center and all the Caribbean initiatives for Clemson University, which were massive. People gave him whole island ecosystems to fix. He's an integrated pest management guy. He's a bug guy. There's a bug guy hanging behind everybody and a historian hanging behind everybody. Like for Steve, the historians, Dr. Richard Sherman and the Sherman family in general, who's amazingly prolific and coming out with a massive book soon. Um, So the foundation is a group of smart people kind of organized and coordinated by the stupid guy, right? I'm president of the foundation. Uh, We don't need funding, even though we pretend like we do. uh, We're self-funded, essentially, across the board. Uh, The scientists are all working pro bono. Uh, All the projects in situ, which require funding and materials, just happen as if by magic. Uh, Some of them come in through SARE. Some of them come in through what we call anonymous, which is a big joke. Uh, everybody knows who it is, but nobody tells. Uh, so we, we're sort of a guiding influence in the repatriation of southern culture for oilseed, vegetables, pollinators, grain, et cetera, et cetera. We're not doing a whole lot in husbandry because we deal in wild habitat husbandry because of pollinators. And those of us who want to understand where we're going with that, anybody note just lately the last survey of GMO pollen contamination and wild bee population, over 80% now on the latest survey. Um, and that dovetails what Chris just said. Why is, it not, why is that stuff in our honey? Glyphosate. Oh, boy. What fun. Um, this doesn't make sense. So the most important person in our foundation, besides our chief rice geneticist, Anna McClung, is Dr. Merle Shepard, the bug person, because he is the pollinator guy, and we can't live without him. So we're managing wild habitat, so our full-farm husbandry goes from pollinators you can't see to pollinators you can, and all the way up the animal chain to top raptors and large animals. And we actually specialize in two sets of seed conservancy all prior to 1850. Those that feed humans and those that should feed humans that have survived by feeding wild animals. And that goes into forage. Dr. Richard Porche's great-great-grandfather wrote the pharmacopoeia for the Confederacy, and the pharmacopoeia was done by the tribes, a la Chris Bianco. Go to the tribes to find out where you can eat and what's good for you, a la John, right? Yeah. So uh, we have massive resources. None of them are me. Uh, but I coordinate everything and I help. With this, then we bank seed and we, for, for rice, the brut- brutal stuff is, Steve knows about this, the brutal stuff for rice is you have to have three years of biosecurity. That means three full sets of planting every year in order to survive. This is a pre-industrial rule, and it used to be your neighbors and yourself that did this. Now, our neighbors, in modern terms, are all our scientists. They are still on the pre-industrial free seed if I hit the wall on anything Steve's got in the ground, like we were trying to find purple straw. I had an Amish family who was provisioning it, purple straw wheat. It was the core pastry wheat of the South. Didn't maintain in records because everybody liked the elite British Celt influences and purple straw just came out of nowhere. It was the engine of black culture in the South. Another unnoted and amazing colonial persistent wheat to the 1950s. It only survived in Ohio, east of Cleveland, in one Amish farm family doing a dairy, 
and they were using as provision wheat, and they still to this day have not gotten sufficient enough crops to be able to give us any seed. And I'm killing myself driving from Charleston to Cleveland to go out there where it was only one-lane roads and the little carriages at sunrise, getting out of my truck and walking to the home, begging. I said, I only need a half a pound, please, to get purple straw. Steve had it in the ground in his plots. He said, why, why are you doing that? <laughs> right? We've got it here. And then the super smart post-grad student jumps on the phone and said, oh, yeah, I've got all the data right here. Here, pop, my email floods with like 60 pages of scientific data on that plot. And then, you want us to save you some? I said, hell yeah, <laughs> right? Because it's extinct out here, right? So everything that's in colonial America goes to the PNW, goes to Australia, goes to New Zealand, New Zealand, then goes to the world. So if you can't find it here, or the tribes aren't hiding it somewhere, or farmers like Ben Burkett that's here, farmers that he knows are still growing this stuff, you just don't meet them. Because if they're growing purple straw wheat, or especially white lamas, which was the Confederacy cake wheat, it was what the Confederacy marched on, and the tribes grew it all in Arizona, and Hayden Mills is what milled it. Right? You ready for that? Put some Sonora in some good whiskey in the mash tun and find out what happens. Ooh. If you like whiskey, you're going to love Chris Bianco because we wouldn't have it if it weren't for Chris. It tastes five years' age at year one, just as white dog, let alone in barrel, if you like whiskey. It's just amazing. And it's odd that they, we don't talk about what Chris's work has done in the drinking part. We talk about food and pastries and things like that. But the number one beer in the world just lately, based on Sonora, the number one whiskey in the world, and they're even doing this in Japan. They were talking about Hokkaido. The whiskey makers in Japan that are doing rice whiskey are booting in Sonora under the radar because they've got terrific import laws over there and planting it to smooth out their $5,000 bottle allocated whiskeys. It's just amazing. White Lamas is a class you should remember. That involves all the Sonora. They're called wafer Jesuit wheats. They were the first introduction wheats on the continent. Extraordinary. And disease-free, right? They grow on their own. I can grow them. I'm a crummy farmer. I just keep hitting it. I mean, we lose half of what we grow every year. And so the idea there is to just keep doing it, like Chris said, and you'll be there. Well, thank you, everyone, Dream Team, and thank you to everyone for coming. (laughs) 